Hey, Crystal. Yes, Joseph? Do you want to study the Bible with me for a bit? I sure do. Do you want to do it with a twist? What's the twist? We're not studying Genesis. Whoa. Listen in to find out more. Welcome to A Word from Our Outpost. With Joseph and Crystal Gruber. A podcast for Catholic disciples who are wrestling to be missionary-minded in their normal, everyday lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, O Lord, our actions by thy holy inspiration, and carry them on by thy gracious assistance, that every word and work of ours may begin in thee, and by thee be happily ended. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So Matthew, you say? Yeah, I've been studying it with a group of guys for the past long time. <laughs> Slowly but surely making your way through. Yeah. Um, recently, you talked about some of the things with me that came up when you were studying Matthew chapter 18. And it's been really awesome for my prayer and for me thinking about lots of things. And then it keeps coming up in conversations. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, and I, I want to learn more because we've kind of talked about it, but I haven't actually like seen some of the like particular passages and I'd like to look at that with you and I'd like to talk about it and I'd like to share that with our listeners. Well, I already pressed the record button, so I think we're pretty well set for that. Good, good. So maybe some context for Matthew's gospel. Yes. So Matthew, one of the apostles held to be the author of the of his gospel, gospel according to Matthew. Sometimes uh, scholars will say maybe it was originally written in Hebrew and for the Jewish people who are converting to Christianity, but we don't have a Hebrew copy of it, which makes it hard to say that it was a Hebrew gospel. But there's a kind of Jewishness about it. There's There's a huge number of references to Old Testament passages explicitly, where he would say, just like the prophet Isaiah said, and I quote, um, and implicit things as well. He seems really attentive to this consonance between the Old Testament and the New, which is kind of neat. And, and one of the ways in which people have seen that, that transfer over is in the very structure of the gospel. So it begins with a kind of prologue explaining the, the birth of... Jesus starts with a genealogy, you know, Matthew 1, chapter 1, half of it is the genealogy of Jesus, and then his birth, uh, the Magi, Herod, escape to Egypt, coming back. So all of that is prologue, all of that is to set the stage for the ministry of Jesus, and then there's kind of the epilogue of the resurrection and the, the Great Commission at the very tail end of Matthew's gospel, but the bulk of it is often seen as five distinct sections marked by him teaching and doing. So the the unity between his words and deeds, and there will be a section where he talks a lot and then does stuff, and then he talks a lot and he does stuff, and so that happens five times, and, and so scholars will point to that as... Matthew representing Jesus, giving, in, a, in an abbreviated form, a new book 
of a new law. So the old book of the law, the Torah, was written over the course of five scrolls, five mm-hmm. books, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Each book serving a different purpose, each one addressing different needs of the people of God. And so that people say, well, there, there's there's a kind of similarity there between the Torah and Matthew's gospel. And I, I use that as context because there are five main speeches of Jesus, and chapter 18 is one of them. Huh. So the first one, the Sermon on the Mount, from chapters 5 through 7, The next one is the sending of the 12 on mission. Then there are the the proclamation of the kingdom, the giving of a bunch of parables. That's the third one. The fourth one, which is the one that we're going to talk about in this podcast, will often be talked about as, you know, life in the church. And then the last one is his whole long apocalyptic, you know, here here are all the woes to you Pharisees. Here's all the, hey guys, Jerusalem's going to come a crashing down. All of that stuff would be the last one. So five main speeches. People spend a lot of time on the Sermon on the Mount. And probably second most popular would be the parables. But I, I think chapter 18, the life in the church section, there's a lot there. So I thought it might be fun to talk about it. I'm excited. Yeah? Yes. Great. Where do you want to start? At the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. So I'll read the the first little section. We'll probably spend a fair bit of time on this because there's just a lot to be unearthed. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one chi- such child in my name welcomes me. Seems like it's a pretty big deal. Become this. like children. It's pretty clear. Well, it is and it isn't. Because what does it mean to become like children? What does it mean to become like children? And why why is this a precondition for entering the kingdom of heaven? They're they're asking him about who's going to be greatest, and he's saying, Before you even talk about who's greatest, here's the the entry level. You cannot pass this point without the sine qua non of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is becoming like a little child. And children weren't particularly like um, I'm not sure the right wording for this. I had they're not high status. They're yeah. not uh, especially protected. Let's say, right? They're living and running around in a world made for adults, and the longer children take to become adults, the less good it is. And also, something that you've pointed out that I think is really interesting: children are not good at things. Yeah, so before we get to that, can we rehearse some other ways in which people interpret? Yeah. Because I think that's helpful. Yes. So like different church fathers, when they comment on this, they, they'll they say, well, to become like a child is to become as innocent as a child, 
or to become like a child is to become as obedient as a child or to become as sweet as a child. These descriptions of children that make me wonder how horrible of a parent I must be because I look at my children and from time to time the words innocent or sweet or obedient don't come immediately to mind. (laughs) And so I wonder, is that what Jesus meant? Right, you know, the church fathers, one of the reasons they're called church fathers is that the kinds of insights that they have into scripture are our best understanding of what a text might mean. They're they're the closest to the actual scripture writers and the social and cultural milieu in which they were being written. And so if they say, here are qualities of children, we don't want to just discount that right away because Maybe our kids aren't the most innocent. But I, I, it does make me wonder if our experience of children might also be relevant. And this is where the observation that I made to you seems appropriate. Yeah. And that being that children aren't very good at things. Yeah. They're not. Sort of by definition, they're, they're just not good at... I mean, when a baby is born... They literally just suck. I, I, I literally, they they know how to nurse. That is what they know. They know how to suck on something in order to derive milk. That is what they come out hopefully knowing how to do. Sometimes kids have trouble even with that. And even then, the result of pooping can cause distress. So because they're not very good at that. Yeah. Awkward. But children need to learn how to do everything. And that process begins with them not knowing anything. They are just just almost hilariously incompetent. I think I've used this example quite a bit, but I think it's hilarious that one of our, our sons is very bad at eating cereal and milk because what he'll do is he'll run and he'll go get the biggest spoon he can find and scoop up his cereal and milk and by the time it reaches his mouth, it's just the cereal. And he leaves a trail from the edge of the table onto the chair, onto his clothes, of milk. Right? He's, he's not good at it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know how to be good at the thing yet, but he does it anyway. And the more that he allows us to help him, the less messy it is. In terms of, oh, hey, you know, maybe if your chair was a little closer to the table or... Maybe if your face was over the bowl or, yeah, we won't try the smaller spoon yet someday. We'll leave that for another day. There are some hills we're not willing to die on. Especially when he's willing to get the spoon himself. Well, so we can help him. We can also let him continue to fail knowing that eventually he will learn, Mm -hmm. right? When he's 20, he's probably not going to be so egregiously bad at eating cereal. And, and I think this is the really beautiful thing, at least for me, when it comes to wanting to understand what does it look like to enter the kingdom of heaven and to say, okay, what Jesus says, become like a little child, that I can trust his timing and I can trust his plan for my life. And that if he's letting me be bad at something, that, that, He isn't going to leave me there if it's not for my ultimate good. And he isn't for any, for any length of time. 
and he isn't going to leave me there forever. Right. But he will let you fail. Yes. And that is, and he may let us fail again and again and again, depending on what our needs are. Mm-hmm. So the, the, I, t- tell me more about the kind of help that he's going to offer. So I guess, inter- I like thinking about with our own children. So I think maybe if I start with our own children, like there are certain things where like we, we actually have an obligation to teach our children certain things and to help them learn certain things. And so we're not going to just like leave them hanging, not knowing how to brush their teeth. Like we can, we can teach them how to do that better as an example. Right. And so trusting with the Lord that if there is something that I feel like, Oh, I keep failing at this again and again and again. And Jesus, please help me that if he, if, and when my heart is in a proper disposition to learn that thing, that he will send help in some form or fashion. I mean, it could be directly from him, some inspiration or in prayer, but it could also be in the form of a friend or a mentor or um, some kind words spoken by a stranger or something that that he has, that he, that he wants to be involved in my life and in relationship with me in such a way that he doesn't want to leave me in a messy situation floundering without co- good reason. In the same way that we don't want to leave our children floundering for an unnecessarily long period of time. You've got a look on your face. Yeah, that's, I, I, I don't know if we believe contrary things, but certainly a different emphasis is what I would bring to the table because God is not afraid of our failures. Yes. Yeah. And he's not afraid to let us continue to fail Yeah, because failure is an option. That's and there, there are kinds of failures that are not moral failures yep. that we may always have. And that's okay because he's not actually demanding a kind of success that is failure free. That that's Yeah. And 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 so my I, I think my emphasis on this is not that uh he will always provide the corrective. Mm-hmm. Because part of the corrective is just being okay with failing. Being okay with with yeah, not uh, not having the appearance of success. Yeah, like our son Gilbert does not mind that the milk is gone by the time the cereal reaches his mouth. Yeah, and there's that is childlike. Yeah, and he will continue to learn, and he'll probably learn to value the milk and devise different strategies of maneuvering spoon to mouth. But he, he's free to enjoy the basic goodness, even though we might accuse him of failing. He he would not see it that way. And he doesn't see it that way. So part of the entering into the childlikeness is being at peace with the way things are and the way things are are messy. And will involve all sorts of different tries and trials as we go. Mm-hmm. I, so this may be a bit in the, of an aside, but it's something that I think that's important and maybe I'll have to come back to later in my life. But I think that there is a very harmful thought out there that was promulgated by Star Wars 
<laughs> episode five, The Empire Strikes Back. And that is on the swamp planet of Dagobah, Yoda telling Luke, do or do not, there is no try. Mm. I think I've internalized that quote. Mm. And I don't think it's true. Mm. I don't think that Yoda is as wise as George Lucas and and the people of, you know, Jim Henson Productions would have us believe just because he looks like a wise old alien. I think that there is trying. I, I think that's actually a huge piece of life and that God is with us as we try. So... This is shedding new light for me on the next part that we wanted to talk about. Well, are we there yet? Because we can jump there. I was going to we 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 can we can jump. We don't we don't have to jump. I'm just I'm just making a statement that I'm my eyes are being opened. This is what happens when you study the Bible. You realize new things even when you thought you prepared for the things you wanted to talk about, then more happens. Yeah, cuz it's the Bible. Because there's always more. Always, always. Yeah. We, so there's a line. Is this where you wanted to go from a woman named Sister Miriam James? Yeah. That's where you wanted to go? Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. Uh, she gave a talk at Focus's Seek 21 conference. And in it, she quoted Father Jacques Philippe, who is a relatively famous uh, Catholic writer, retreat, retreat director. director. And he said, and she quoted, and now I'm quoting, words to the effect of, so it's a paraphrase for me, modern man is condemned to success because without God, he has no one to whom he can take his failures. I'll say it again. Modern man is condemned to success because without God, he he has no one to whom he can take his failures. And children are not condemned to success they are free to fail and i think this is absolutely critical we learn what failure is by how other people receive us and if we know that we are received by a good and loving god then we don't know failure anymore we know only his love and acceptance and i think this is an element of being like a child that I think Jesus is getting at mm-hmm. is that we are free to fail because we have someone to whom we can take our failure. And that we are less. We're just ourselves. Mm-hmm. We, we have a freedom to be as limited and as full and as empty as we actually are. And so I, I think like this precondition on entering the kingdom of heaven it it makes a lot of sense, this detachment from success, this detachment from our own ability. It gives God freedom to be God to us. If we always have to be successful, if we always have to get everything right, that doesn't leave him much room to be himself. We actually sort of crowd him out. Okay, and this is really really fascinating to me something i've never considered before you informed me that this sort of series of jesus talking is about life in the church right so can we 
Do you want to just say what the pieces of this chapter are, or shall I? You go. Great. So the next section in chapter 18, he starts talking about people who are causing these little ones, these people who are uh, who are entering into the kingdom of God, they cause them to sin, that it'd be better for a great millstone to be put around their neck and them to be tossed into the sea. And then he talks about hands or feet or eyes causing us to sin, better to cut them off and enter into life um, without those things and to be thrown into the Gehenna fire. And then he talks about how um, whenever someone is lost, that the good shepherd is going to go after the lost. And then he talks about uh, when someone sins against us, what we are to do in order to uh, correct. And in fact, the words that he has says in verse 15, when you go and point out the fault, uh, the two of you when you are alone, if the member of the church listens to you, you have regained that one. You have regained that one. So we have lost them because they have sinned against us. But if we're able to, to correct them and they receive it, we regain them. And so he lays out this process of fraternally correcting and what happens if they don't listen? Well, this is what you do. And then what if that they still don't listen? This is what you do. And what if they still don't listen? Then this is what they do. And then Peter says, what about forgiveness? How many times do I have to forgive somebody? Seven times? And Jesus says, nope, 77 times, man. He doesn't say man. I added that. <laughs> that was like a hippification of Jesus. I apologize. Uh, and then the last part of this discourse is a parable about someone, a servant, who is forgiven a huge, enormous, like mind-staggeringly large sum of money that he owes to his master. The debt is forgiven. And then he goes and uh, beats up on another servant who owes him just a little bit. And then Jesus is like, that that guy who was forgiven but wouldn't forgive anybody else, he's going to be handed over to a torturer until he pays his entire debt. Bum, bum, bum. And that's the discourse. So these are the elements of chapter 18, life in the church. Uh, you got to be like kids, but watch out. People can cause kids to stumble, and bad things happen. And look, even parts of your body might make you sin. And hey, people get lost, and also people sin against you. And you need to know what to do, and you need to know how to respond. And you might get forgiven, but if you're not going to forgive someone else, it's just not going to stick. It's like, these are... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I just, I, it's so profound to me that, that this this little thing about the child that I, I mean, I could see how it tied into the temptation to sin stuff of like, yeah, you know, woe to you that are a stumbling block for people that are being like this. But I've never seen the coherence of the rest of this chapter before. And and so Jesus is just, if, if this is the life in the church discourse, he's describing what life in the church is going to look like. Now, if I were to make up a church and describe what it was going to look like, um, <laughs> there's a song by, I think, Sanctus Real. It's called Happy Plastic People. 
Are we happy? Pla- but then it's funny because it's kind of like calling out the church. Like, are we happy plastic people on a stained glass masquerade? Right. But there's this like man-made idea of like, we want perfection. We want things to look right. Like we want things to be right. We want people to behave in a certain way. And Jesus is saying, that's not going to happen. People are going to mess up. There are some ways people are going to mess up. Um, people are going to mess up by making other people mess up. And those people, they're in real bad shape. There are people that are going to mess up because they're going to wander away and go astray, and we should help them out. We should we should help them get back. There are going to people that mess up because they hurt other people, and when you get hurt, when somebody's hurting you, there's something you can do about that. Also, right? Like so, there's all these. There's here's a problem. Here's something we can do about it. Here's a problem. Here's something we can do about it. Here's a problem. Here's so basically, he's saying we're going to have problems, but there's something we can do about it. And at the end of the day, the thing that needs to be done about it in our own hearts is forgiveness. So depending on what the problem is, there might be a thing to do to address said problem. But at the end of the day, forgiveness has to be a part of it to be incorporated into the body of Christ. Yeah, forgiveness, which doesn't mean just ignoring or sweeping under the rug. It also involves being clear to the person who has sinned, this is what you've done. And giving them an opportunity to repent and to ask for forgiveness. And if that doesn't work, to continue to call out to them. Right? He talks about the lost sheep, and then he talks about reproving another who sins. Like, who's the one who is the lost sheep? Right? The, it's not the innocent little one in the example. It's somebody who's actually gone off. The, the, be, the being lost is symbolic of being lost in sin. And then what is finding them, but saying, you, you are lost. You are not where you ought to be. This is the reality of the situation. The things that you've done to hurt me, these are what they are. I'm giving you an opportunity to respond and to return so that you might be regained. And I'm going to keep doing that until the point comes when you, you, have, you have put yourself outside of the church, Right. So several things happen. So one way even to read uh, verses 8 and 9 about uh, the hand and the feet and the eyes being cut off, lest the whole body be taken and thrown into the eternal fire, is that it's... So one way to read it is he's saying, you know, even if it's your hand, you'd have to cut it off. And he's that extreme saying, I mean, hands don't cause us to sin, but if they could... We need to be less attached to our hands than we are to wanting to be holy. But the other way to read it, and some of the church fathers read it this way, is that the eyes and the hands and the feet that Jesus is talking about, he's talking about members of the church and cutting them off. And and if they're causing other people to sin, to say, all right, this is us cutting you off. And then uh, he's giving you the way in which they get cut off. It's It's not just... Uh, one quick chop, it's going out to them saying, you've sinned. What are you going to do? Uh, I'm not going to listen. Okay, me and a couple more witnesses are here, and we're saying, seriously, you did sin. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. And then you come with the whole church, um, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Like That is the action of cutting off the hand or the foot or the eye, but he, he's giving a process for it, and he's giving a, a, 
an image for this person who has been cut off. He is the lost sheep, right? What is the Gentile? What is the tax collector? But the one who is in need of good news, who is in need of forgiveness, who is in need of mercy. And we are to bend heaven and earth so that they might be regained. And life in the church is filled with people who hurt other people and people who are being hurt by other people. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to stop that from happening. What I'm telling you to do... I'm giving you a way back. I'm giving you a way back. I'm telling you how to respond rightly to that reality. And this is really interesting to me for several reasons. One, thinking about within the church, it seems as though there's a lot of surprise when there's scandal or bad things. or Which, incidentally, most of the temptations to sin and causes you to stumble it's the same basic word scandal on which means to make stumble yeah okay which we get the word scandal from yeah okay so these things we we so with reading this we should not be surprised that these things happen because we're humans and they happen this tells me it, the problem is when they're swept under the rug, when they're ignored, when they're not addressed, right? Because the Lord brings the healing when the the bad things are addressed. And so we should not be surprised if and when they happen. We, we should address them and we should, especially if we're the one who is harmed, know how to approach the one who has harmed us, um, in a way that's, I mean, sometimes there needs to be like forgiveness in the heart and appropriate boundaries is the right thing to do depending on the circumstances. But the the reality of hurts do happen and that's not okay. I think also the quote that's coming to mind is unforgiveness is like swallowing poison, hoping the other person will die, right? So, so again, as Joseph said, forgiveness is not saying, oh, this bad thing that happened is okay. That's not what we're saying. That's not what forgiveness is. That's an improper understanding of forgiveness. It is actually, in fact, acknowledging that something happened that is not okay, but also acknowledging that we have a God who is, who, who is, can raise from the dead, who's bigger than the worst things. Right. And the implication in the final parable is, God is the master who has forgiven us. An insurmountable debt. Right, something that we could not pay off. And what other people do to us doesn't come close to equaling what God has forgiven us. Because what happens when we sin? We may hurt the other person, but we're hurting ourselves and we're denying God. Every time I sin, I'm saying, I'm crowding God out from being the arbiter of what is right and wrong. And I'm going to decide to construct a reality in my own mind in which I am the one who's right, and I have a right to do the things that I'm doing, even though it doesn't match nature, even though it doesn't match my good. I'll try to rewrite that. And and so that we're, we're trying to kick God out of the one place that he can't be kicked out of, which is his godhood. And so he he kicks himself out of his godhood in a sense, right? He empties himself and takes upon the form of a servant, the form of a slave, and embraces the cross and shows us this is this is what our sins do. We we crowd him out. We we kick him out of his spot. And he's like, Yeah, let me show you. 
what your sin has been doing. Let me show you the my response. My response is even in the worst thing that you could possibly do, which is to do which is to put the highest thing lowest. God is still God and God still forgives. God can still forgive even the worst thing that we could do. And the worst thing that we could do is deicide, the killing of God. If he can forgive that, where we say, you are not God, I am. I'm killing you as an idea, and I'm replacing you, God, with me. If he can forgive that, we can forgive other people when they sin against us. Mm-hmm. And then, I think this is just so important and so powerful Thinking about this quote, modern man is condemned to success because without God, he has no one to whom he can bring his failures. And I I see this in the cancel culture stuff that's going on where it's one misstep and you're just done. There is no space for forgiveness, which is evidence of lack of God. Right. Forgiven people forgive people. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, I've, I've heard it said by a man probably wiser than me, uh, don't confess your sins to those who have no power to forgive you. Right, with cancel culture, as it were, when people are making apologies for things, they're doing it to people who are incapable of forgiveness as of right now. Um, and... And then people are surprised that they don't receive forgiveness, that they're not reintegrated. But we... People that haven't received forgiveness don't know how... You can't give what you don't have. And so if you... Yeah, being able to receive forgiveness from the Father is going to be our our first step in being able to also be a venue or an avenue. I don't know what the right word is, but like a contribution to, to forgiving and even still with the parable of the unforgiving servant, like he even received the forgiveness and still had a hard time passing it on. So even that in and of itself apparently isn't enough. But I think, yeah, I, this has just been really powerful for me, especially um, when I am coming up against things that I'm disappointed or hurt by in the church um, or in our community or whatever, wherever different places and, and having conversations with other people, this has been, just been coming up for me again and again and again of, wow, yep, hurt people hurt people. And we live in a church that is making mistakes and um, there is no such thing as a perfect organization or a perfect marriage or a perfect parent. And all of those scenarios, sin happens, hurting happens. And I get to choose if I'm going to enter into the forgiveness or not. And and I get to choose if I'm going to be surprised by it or not. And I think the more I remember that I'm a child and that I mess up, it's a lot easier to to look at somebody or something that has been hurtful to me and say, well, they're little children and they're messing it up, but I can forgive. Yeah, and the- I can correct I can correct also, like I can communicate to the right person in the right place. Like it, you brought this up today of like where where is the line between gossip and and actually correcting the thing that is wrong. 
and and being aware of okay who is who can I actually talk to that can actually that is actually the the source and where the correction needs to actually happen and until I do that I'm bordering on gossip potentially right if we're not bringing our legitimate complaint to the person who can resolve it that's a big problem that that is not what Jesus recommends yeah and I, I think we have this temptation to do the wrong thing when we have been sinned against. And it, it has to do with that beginning. Are we properly disposed to understanding the world as it is? You know, he, Jesus says to become like the little children. That's because we, we have it within us by the grace of God to, to, to be like little children. And all of the people around us have that potential to become like little children. And if we don't walk around saying, the people around me could be like little children, they, they could be entering into the kingdom of heaven at any point, right? The, the, the transformation of conversion, of metanoia, it's a moment away for people. And it's possible and it happens. It's possible and it happens and I think this chapter is just a great corrective to our disposition when we're reading news stories, when we're talking about our coworkers, our supervisors, our uh, neighbors, our family members, our extended family. I think this chapter is a great one to keep coming back to and saying, am I allowing this vision of life with Jesus to be normative for me, where I understand I make mistakes, I fail, I fail people, and other people do that too. And I can, I can know that, but am I living it? Am I participating in it? Am I inviting our Lord to say, well, am I saying to him, well, Lord, in my failures, what are you going to do? What do you do with my failures? And do I, do I listen to him? Do I understand uh, that for every wrong note that I might play, he can play so masterfully around it that great music might still come? Do I understand that no matter how poorly I may play the game, that he can take my worst shot and, and take it up and, and score the goal or score the basket because he's just waiting for me to act. There is trying. It's not a matter of do or do not. It, it is a matter of trying, knowing that we're not the only player and knowing that our Lord delights to play with us. He delights to participate in this work with us. He came from heaven to be Emmanuel, to be God with us, and he delights in us. And I know have known children who are not very delightful because they... They, even even as children, are turning away from this. But when children are delightful, when they're truly being what a child is and not being wrapped up in um, the the lies and distractions of the world, I do delight. I, I mean, heck, I delight in my kids even when they're having their temper tantrums. <laughs> you do. Um, and that's something, too. We, we had a pastor a while back who was, was like, Jesus said, be more like kids. Kids have tantrums. 
you guys hold it in all the time and you don't actually tell Jesus what's on your minds and in your hearts. He wants you to have a tantrum if you actually need to have a tantrum. Like he's not afraid of you. He's not afraid of your emotional outbursts. He's not afraid of the things you have to say. He's just waiting for you to show up. So good. So true. I think with that, I'd like to encourage our listeners to take time to be like little children and mess up and know when to apologize. And when somebody messes up, practice correction and forgiveness, which is going to take grace. Just going to need prayer. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for his words. Thank you for this discourse. I pray for the grace for us, for our listeners, to be little children, to not be afraid of failure, to not be afraid of imperfection. And I ask for the grace also to know when it is appropriate to offer correctives to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray for the grace to forgive, also for the grace to receive your forgiveness, first and foremost. I ask all this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. From our outpost to yours, thanks for listening. And a special thanks to John Mark Skoke. That's S-K-O-C-H. For the music. Check him out on Spotify.